and I would like to very warmly welcome and, rec- and recognize Matthew Van Dyke. Uh, Matthew, welcome back. How are you doing? Thank you for having me back. I'm doing well. Um, I'm talking to you from Donbass, near the front line. Uh, things appear to be going pretty well up here. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Um, Matthew, we, we've heard a whole lot, and you know, before just to contextualize, we've heard a whole lot about um, all of these Russian terror bombings, effectively, of Ukrainian infrastructure, especially electrical infrastructure. Um, has that affected you much thus far, uh, the area you're in? Um, I can't obviously guess how far away from the front lines, but um, is, is that a problem? Is that something that's impeding you? Uh, just it's it's, uh, it's impeding many around the country, and as it was impeding you last time you were with us, if I remember. Well, what I can say is that my team back in Kiev, it is impeding them uh, greatly. Uh, power outages, I think it's three times a day now, is what they've told me. I don't want to say what my situation is here because um, that might be too on, specific. Right, depending on which areas have power here, people would be able to to figure out which part of Donbass I'm in, possibly so. Um, but I will, I will say it greatly affects our, our work in Kyiv um, administratively and, and my ability to communicate securely with, with uh, people that I still have back in Kyiv. Understood. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. Um, how's the fundraising going? Uh, last time you were saying you were trying to get a, a number of airsoft guns in, uh, to be able to train better, more easily uh, with the, the programs you have going on. Um, is the fundraising going all right? Uh, better than expected, less well? Other? Uh, the appearance on the report helped a little bit. Um, it's not, this is definitely our least funded mission in, in our eight plus years now of, uh, of existence. It's definitely still a challenge. It's been difficult. Um, you know, I, I, it's been just been a real challenge to fundraise for this. Um, we're still trying to acquire more equipment. Uh, we hope that we'll be able to raise the funds by the end of the year. Uh, hopefully December uh, works out with fundraising so we can do that. We'd like to greatly expand our training programs uh, in the kind of coming year, especially. So, Matthew, how many Ukrainians are you training right now? What What are your plans? And, you know, maybe, uh, unlike myself, uh, Charles understands these things a lot better. Maybe you can delve into it a little bit with Charles, uh, you know, how the training is going, what you're doing. And, um, but let's maybe first start with the headlines. You know, how, how many Ukrainians do you get to work with in your current capacity? Well, right now we were out here training a small sniper team uh, near the front, but Uh, Last week, we finished up training a 45 National Guard and National Guard unit prior to their first deployment. Uh, They desperately needed that training. It was a mixture of live fire training and tactical training. Uh, Usually, those are about the size of groups we work with, uh, platoon or company size. We have trained an entire battalion. We trained the uh, um, Larry Marcus's 47th separate battalion, which is now a regiment. Uh, But we trained that entire battalion. And that was about 350 soldiers uh, in that training program. So it, it varies. Uh, we're doing special specialized training, like we're training snipers now. It could just be a few, and or it could be up into the hundreds. It really depends on, on what you're working with, what their needs are, uh, and what kind of training it is. 
but we provide a wide range of training. So it's not just basic training or even advanced tactical training. Uh, we provide EOD training, sniper training, uh, medical training, uh, pretty much anything that they can think of that they need. We, we have a trainer and can find a trainer to do it. Hi, uh, Matthew, this is Charles. Yeah. Great to hear that. Um, yeah, so you're training at, at battalion size level then. So, uh, like you said, 350 some odd, maybe more soldiers. Um, how many trainers are you? Do you have there with your organization uh, right now to try to facilitate all that? Well, at the time that we last trained a battalion, we had eight trainers uh, for that training, um, and then some of our uh, translators also function as assistant trainers if they've been with us a while. Uh, not only can they translate, except they know they know enough, especially for tactical training, to assist to a certain extent. Uh, for for training now, uh, we have a four man team here, but this was a small group, so that was a very high um, instructor to student ratio for the sniper training. Uh, for the for the training of the National Guard unit, the that ended last week, uh, we had four trainers uh, and an assistant for that training of 45 soldiers. So it really varies. Uh, we're trying to increase the size of the team though beyond 10 so we can work with even larger groups because we're finding that units are being deployed without training or with very little training, uh, sometimes being sent right up to the front line without having really received any training. And this is something that Ukraine could really excel at. Um, the Russians have, have don't really have any training capacity now. Uh, to be able to train, especially during the mobilization. But even without that, they've lost a lot of their, their training capacity through their deployments. Uh, so this is something that, that Ukraine could actually gain a good edge in. But, you know, with uh, a lot of the training of Ukrainians is done outside the country, where the UK might take 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers to the UK, train them, and then bring them back. But NATO forces aren't really doing training on the ground. So we're trying to fill that gap. Um, and provide training, but it, it is shocking when we train a unit right before their deployment. In the case of the battalion, uh, the 47th Battalion, Larry Marcus's unit, they were about to deploy, and we actually ended up deploying with them to the front, but they, had, they hadn't received training. If we hadn't been there, they wouldn't have received training that battalion before their deployment. Uh, same with the National Guard unit. We've worked with them before, and we trained them some, but there were some new guys and they really needed this training before their deployment. So uh, it's, it's really critical when we find units that, that are about to be deployed and haven't received the training that we're able to get in there and do the training. Great. Thanks. And, and just for, for the listeners kind of maybe a bit more about what the training actually includes. I mean, you talk about, um, well, I assume you're mostly focused on things like small unit tactics, uh, patrolling ambushes, clearing trenches, marksmanship, these kinds of things. Or is, is there something you like to highlight in your training program of how this is helping them? Yeah, that was that was a good summary of the training we provide. Um, most of the time, it's a, a mix of some live fire training for marksmanship. Uh, we use a lot of very high powered airsoft um that are beyond what you would find in, in, in the United States. I mean, these are ones that will cause welds to draw blood, uh, but it makes them not want to get hit by them. So it's the closest we can get to sim rounds. We, we use that for tactical training. Uh, a lot of our training is small unit tactics. Uh, 
uh, recently with the National Guard unit. We also did platoon level training. Uh, we also provide medical, um, you know, ambush, react to ambush, defensive positions. Uh, in this war, for the first time, we, we've uh, how to do trenches, something that we haven't had to instruct in our previous missions in other countries. Uh, so really, uh, pretty much anything that they want, they need, and that they request. Um, but the standard package is usually a mix of small unit tactics and some marksmanship uh, and medical. Matthew, did you say you train snipers with Airsoft as well? Uh, we actually do, but we don't. In marksmanship, we train them on the on the range, which is what we've been doing out here. Um, the only time that we use, marks, we, that we use uh, Airsoft with the snipers is teaching them how to move uh, and how to integrate with the squad. Uh, so we can integrate them with airsoft sniper rifles into a squad that's using airsoft AKs, so that they can provide perimeter defense for the snipers, so that they know how to how to integrate snipers or, or designated marksmen into their unit. Um, but but that's really what that's used for. That's really interesting. So what's the rationale behind using airsoft in the first place? Um, now, not that I would necessarily have come across. It one way or another previously, but it's just something that I've not heard of before in other contexts outside of your group. Well, this is something that we we started doing in Iraq when we when we first were established back in 2014. Um, it, it was originally a lack of access to sim rounds, um, and also some of the units we trained don't even have weapons for everybody. So even if they had sim munition, they wouldn't have the weapons to use it in. Uh, we found that very high-powered airsoft approximates what some munition does anyway. Um, it allows us to to get hundreds of thousands of rounds that we can get into the country and not have to worry too much about the ammunition count while training. Uh, the, the weapons that we use are exact replicas of... We try to get, use exact replicas of the weapons that they'll actually be using. Uh, in this case, we're using... AK-47s, which are close to the AK-74s that they use. Uh, the weight, the feel, they're all metal. Uh, the weight's approximately what the real weapon is. Uh, they have an electronic blowback feature, which simulates recoil. Uh, we give them limited amounts of ammunition so that it, it approximates, approximates the load of ammo that they would realistically be carrying. Uh, and really, it allows us to put them through combat simulations, including scenario-based training, so that they are on missions of the type that they're likely to encounter during their employment, and they have some level of simulated combat experience uh, before they actually end up in real combat. So it gives them a real advantage over training that other units get. You mentioned about training trenches. Um, is, is that a new thing that you haven't really done before? And How's that different, especially you know, with the context of artillery, context of drones in modern warfare, especially what we've been seeing in Ukraine? Um, how does that change and how do you adjust to that? Right. Well, this is something that we didn't have to do in previous missions in Iraq or the Philippines. But here it's it's a lot of it is artillery war, uh, especially up here at the front. You hear artillery throughout the day, all day, every day. Uh, this was actually something that was requested by Ukrainians when we started training was how do they dig trenches and how do they dig skirmishers, uh, which is a, a, a one-man trench fighting position. Uh, so we we got the shovel. We started digging and teaching them how to dig these. 
Uh, also, when I, I deployed with the 47th separate battalion to to uh, Donbass to well near Bakhmut back in the summer, um, and did a frontline advising on their defensive position of where they were there, um, and actually was in a hole digging trenches myself with them. Uh, this is something that's actually essential in in, a, in this artillery war. Uh, they have to be able to to hold the position and survive uh, artillery barrages that go on all day every day. Uh, it's very it's very uh, flashback to World War One type warfare, but it's a skill that that has sort of been lost in soldiering to an extent and not used too much, but now is is actually become extremely important and one that we're uh, enthusiastically training them to do. Actually, even tonight, even tonight while we were working with snipers and we were at a range, there was another group that was digging skirmishers and asked for for one of our trainers to go over and show them how to do it. So it's it's a constant ask that we, that we hear. That's great, Matthew. Thanks. Um... I'm I'm also curious about in your training how you support them to learn, you know, the basics of of combined arms. Um, starting with the defensive positions, knowing you know even something as simple as filling out a range card or setting up interlocking fields of fire or how to lay uh, communication wire or whatever it might be. Um, radio messages, standardized radio messaging. Does your training include all of that as well? Uh, it certainly includes interlocking sectors of fire and all of that. Um, the communication, uh, they rarely have radios, or if they do, they don't usually have them on training. Um, they're usually having their own communications. We're training them, you know, especially in small unit tactics. The defensive perimeters aren't too large if they're not within earshot of each other. Um, it's something that we can do, but but almost always when they're training, they don't have radios. And a lot of the units don't necessarily have all of them don't have radios when they deploy. So we train them with what they have, what they bring. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the communication issue is, is something that, you know, that's still largely on them to have the radio equipment and how their communication is. There's also language barriers um, as far as, you know, they have their own systems, their own, uh, words for certain things and and we adapt to it and use those words but their communication is largely um, however the unit wants to do it makes sense I think uh, you're talking about the airsoft um, I think that's, that's genius uh, using all of these airsofts um, you mentioned last time you were on that that was one of the constraints that your you and your organization had to expanding the training was was trying to be able to get enough of these uh, airsoft replicas uh, into country. Is that still the same? Yes, we're we still need to purchase a lot more. Um, for a while, I, I basically bought every airsoft gun of this model <laughs> that was available in the states. Uh, it was at the the end of a line that they had produced um, of the specific model that we really like to use. We'd use in Iraq, and we're using here. But now they've started to be produced again. So we need about double what we have now. The issue isn't just, you know, if you have a, a group of of uh, 60 trainees, you need more than 60 airsoft guns. Because, of course, 
throughout a day, one might stop working. One needs, you know, you need to change a battery. You need to clear a barrel, whatever you need to do. You need to have extra guns ready to just switch the gun and hand it off to the trainees so they don't lose any time. Uh, so really, really, there's a percentage, you know, 10% or so above above the number of the trainees. We have to have an excess airsoft guns and the larger uh, our arsenal of airsoft, the more we can train at one time. And and also it allows us to do larger combat simulations, multi-day combat simulations on platoon versus platoon and and uh, potentially even company level exercises out in the field uh, that would give platoon commanders and company commanders uh, a real opportunity to gain some leadership experience that would otherwise be impossible for them to really gain in such a way. So really the more we can do, the more we can get, the better. Uh, when my trainers come over, some of them have, have uh, brought as many as 20 airsoft guns in their luggage, uh, hauling all that weight. Uh, they weigh about eight pounds a piece or so, actually a little more. Um, but really we do need to increase our arsenal um, it became a little bit of an issue with the last training where I spent a lot of my time sitting in a vehicle doing uh, work on airsoft guns to keep everything running smoothly. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, just for, for those who are listening, I mean, uh, talking about platoons, usually about 25 to 30 guys. Uh, so uh, platoon on platoon, that would be right at the, it'd be even above the limit. Um, and a company, uh, roughly about 100, 120 probably, people, um, which I'm guessing, Matthew, I mean, this war having more of a con conventional aspect to it, I'm guessing most of the conflicts are really kind of company-sized attacks and defenses, or is there still a lot of small unit stuff going on at the front? Uh, there's everything. I mean, when it's in the towns and cities, um, small unit tactics really become important, especially for room clearing and, and street by street clearing. Um, so really, really, there's everything. Part of part of the main issue, if we were able to do platoon and company sizes, is the leadership being able to coordinate all of that and having squads work together um, to be able to do assaults and flanking maneuvers and things like this that are really difficult to do with with just a squad. So uh, there's a lot of value in it in it when we're able to scale up the training that way. Yeah, thanks a lot. Maybe I can hand it back over to Dolman. I don't know if you want to, if you have any Yeah, questions. absolutely. Um, Matthew, how do you get the airsoft guns through the airport security in the first place? I mean, they're always in checked luggage, right? But they they must look an awful lot like like real guns. One presumes you need to uh, uh, declare them with the airline when you're trying to move such things around. Uh, sometimes we we usually don't declare them because it just causes confusion. Um, actually the time when we first brought the first group into Ukraine, uh, somebody, I don't know if it was the airline or TSA had actually written, written on the bag guns, um, and not distinguishing that they were airsoft. Um, you know, it's, it hasn't been too much of a problem going from America to Europe. Um, one time going to Iraq, going through Qatar, I had a, about 20 airsoft guns seized and not returned. Um, they actually came on the airplane and took me off thinking that they had found 20 real AKs. And then as they looked through the security cameras and then looked at me like I was supposed to, to feel like I'd been caught, I shrugged and said, well, they're airsoft. Who cares? 
Um, and then they were embarrassed and then they kept the guns anyway. But uh, it, ha- it's not, it hasn't been too much of a problem. Unfortunately, Poland has been really good about letting things through that are going to Ukraine. Uh, we do provide a letter that, that is with our trainers that's in Polish and English that they can show to Polish uh, customs at the airport if they do have a problem. Um, last time I went through the border of Ukraine, uh, the border guards took a photo of the airsoft sniper rifles that I had brought in myself. But, um, you know, generally you can get them in. Sometimes it helps if you have a letter from one of the units you're training. Fair enough. Makes sense. It's just, you know, as you said, they, they are the same form factor as, uh, yeah. as the real weapons that they're supposed to be approximating so obviously that's a, it's a big difference hey we're getting a lot of questions you know because you, you said before you came uh you you posted on twitter that you're live from donbass what's the situation on the front what can can you tell us anything at all um of how it looks like at the front uh in donetsk oblast unless you can't uh there's a lot of artillery still um as at least as much as there was in summer, uh, you know, it's enough to not just noises, but even rattle windows at times. Um, it's just constant back and forth artillery barrages. Uh, I'm impressed with some of the equipment that I'm seeing up here is, is, you know, uh, there's some more NATO, clearly NATO provided equipment than there was the last time I deployed with a unit back in the summer near Bakhmut. Um, morale seems pretty high, but, you know, I, I think people are starting to realize this is going to be still a long war. Uh, there is, uh, it's mostly artillery and rocket artillery. And you see it, you see, you see the explosions. One vehicle got torched tonight. I could see in the distance. Um, but really it's, it's still mostly artillery war right now from, that's that's going to continue. I don't see that ending anytime soon. I think people need to kind of buckle up because uh, the actions that this war is going to be over anytime soon are, are a little misguided, I think, from what I'm seeing up here. So how do you see the progress of the war going generally? Uh, it's, it's Slow and really... steady wins the race? Yeah, slow and steady wins the race. Um, I think that there are going to be some some back and forth. Uh, there's going to be times that the Russians make gains. We can't expect this to just be a wave that just rolls east forever. Uh, they've definitely been knocked off their footing, but uh, they can still call up a, a large amount of manpower. They can still produce some replacement of ammunition over time if they hold on. Uh, this is this is going to really be a fight. Um, there's going to be a lot more casualties. Uh, it is not. It is not this tsunami, uh, Ukrainian tsunami that's just washing over everything. It's. It's really gotten bogged down a bit in recent weeks, especially in certain areas. Uh, and there's give and take of territory. Uh, winter, I think, could be very good for Ukraine uh, when the ground's frozen and they they'll be able to make advances. They're all good. They're going to be better equipped for winter. Uh, even just as things like winter clothing, uh, whether provided by NATO or by some of the aid organizations that are donating it, it'll definitely give them an advantage over the Russians. Um, and, and winter would be a good time to make moves before the spring thaw. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's really, hey, it's really muddy out here. 
um, it's actually hard to move vehicles sometimes, and spring's going to be even worse after the fall. So there's a lot of factors in Ukraine and in the territory of Ukraine. Um, that same great soil that makes it, you know, the bread box of the world is also the, the same thing that gets vehicles bogged down and slows down progress when you're trying to, to gain territory. So all that's going to be a factor in this war and in dragging this war out um, at least a couple more years. And so this is where maybe we can illustrate the difference between Russia having already suffered a strategic defeat simply because they can't get to their goals. They can't change the regime in Ukraine. They can't get Kiev, right? They can't occupy the whole country. And on the other hand, actually fully defeating Russia means kicking them out of all of Ukrainian sovereign territories. And this is something that will take, as you note, some time, a lot of effort, a lot of casualties. And this is why continued support by private individuals, by government is by governments is so important. This is why continued training of more and more Ukrainian forces is so important as well. Right. And things like you're doing, for example. Right. Everybody is gonna have to hang in there. Um, you know, this is there's been a lot of thought that that in conversation there's a lot of optimism and optimism is good, but but people need to be prepared for the fact that this is going to go on a long time. Uh, I, I am concerned, as I believe a lot of people are, about the NATO alliance holding strong and, you know, political elections in in various countries can lead to a change of government that may provide more or less support to Ukraine. Right now, everything's good, and this is a time for Ukraine to make as much progress as they can. Uh, there might be times when that support becomes more lean, Um but this is a, a struggle that everybody needs to, who's committed to it, needs to be fully aware that it's a commitment that could last years, um, not just months. And and we're, we might really just be in the early stages of this war. Matthew, as you said, winter is around the corner. Does your team have proper winter gear? Do your trainers have proper winter gear? A lot was made about you know, a lot of winter gear being shipped in from Canada, from the Nordics, also from across Europe, the US, uh, for Ukraine, uh, which I trust will do the Ukrainians a whole lot better than uh, those, you know, million and a half uh, uniforms in Russia that got turned into, I don't know, marble countertops in Lake Como villas and uh, possibly a yacht or two. Um, but you know, are, are you sorted for the winter? Are you as a team prepared for winter conditions and winter training? Well, actually, uh, your next guest coming up, Rip Rawlings, uh, I talked to him about what what people were using for winter gear, and he offered to to send my team some stuff. So uh, I think he's going to supply us some good winter gear, uh, some good good winter outerwear. It is getting cold, uh, but even right now we were we were getting cold tonight. Um, but you know, uh, Rip's been great. Uh, and uh, he said a few weeks ago he'd help us out with some with some winter gear when I asked. Uh, so yeah, I think I think we'll be okay on that. Um, it's just I, I wish that these electricity outages in in Kiev would get sorted out. Um, we've had to, we've bought firewood for fireplaces. Um, we are trying to get an uninterruptible power supply battery system to charge off the power when it's on and then use it for essential things when it's off. Um, we have a generator, but but that's going to burn through fuel. So it's going to be a tough winter for everybody. Um, but, but, you know, we're going to hang in there. We've we've relocated the organization basically to Kiev. Um, some of us are living in a, in a house in Kiev full time. 
Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we're fully committed, whether it's warm, cold, rainy, snow, or whatever happens here. You've done a lot of training previously in uh, places that were a lot warmer and uh, tended to be a lot drier as well. What have you had to do differently? How have you had to adjust? What differences did you have to, what, what new methods did you have to introduce into your own, uh, what should I call it, vocabulary repertoire uh, to be able to make this shift? Uh, and, you know, who, who else helped you with this? Of course, you know, you, you, you don't operate alone. You have a lot of other colleagues that work with you, but what are all the things that you had to change about your approaches just because of the very different geographical conditions that you operate in now? Right. That's true. I've spent a lot of, a lot of my career in desert regions, especially North Africa and the Middle East. Um, this is, this is very different. Uh, we have a lot of rainy days in, in Ukraine and that requires a lot of adjustment on the fly about training, about what training we're doing on a day and training schedules because the airsoft equipment that we use is run off battery um, and we don't want them getting wet. Um, so, you know, we've had to, to change up training plans and have backup plans based on weather. Um, you know, it, it, it wears down trainers, it wears, wears down trainees, uh, the rain and the cold. Uh, it's, it's a lot. You know, our our house floors are filthy from coming in with boots with mud. Um, it's hard on the equipment. It's hard on us. Um, it's it's definitely a challenge. It's definitely a very different environment than anything that, that we've had to deal with. Fortunately, uh, my my lead trainer is Canadian, so he has the other experience of of being more in Ukraine type weather. So uh, we we're making it work. I mean, in the summer, I'll, I was glad it wasn't 120 degree heat. Um, but you know, in the winter when it's freezing, I'll, I'll probably wish that I was in a rock. So what new things did you have to introduce into, into what you teach and how you teach just because of the very different weather? I'm sure that, you know, any, wh whatever you teach, you kind of get used to doing the same thing over and over again, right? If you're a primary school teacher or if you're a secondary school teacher, you kind of figure out your thing during your first, second year. And then the years going on, you pretty much just do the same thing year, year in, year out, right? I, I bet you must have had kind of a similar experience in all of your years in various deserts. Um, so this must have been quite a this must have led to quite a few changes in curriculum no yes uh not so much the weather but the terrain uh in iraq we focus a lot on on urban warfare because you know basically that's that's where all the warfare happens in iraq it doesn't take too much in the open desert because you don't last too long in the open desert um so that was largely a focus on on small unit tactics and urban environment in iraq and here we get a lot of requests for, for how to fight in wooded areas. Um, there are a lot of fields in Ukraine, of course, as well, a lot of farmland. But, but we, we, we were, from the very start, being asked, told, yes, we need uh, urban combat training, but how do you fight in the forest? So this was something that we uh, hadn't had to teach ever before until, until Ukraine was fighting in forested areas, which has a lot more concealment and cover and, you know, different things that, that, that you can teach. Ambushes are different, reacting ambushes, um, you know, doing buddy rushes with cover. Uh, uh, there's a lot of different, different things about the terrain that are, are very different than what we've done in the past, but we've adapted, 
and in many ways it's a, it's better trained to fight and survive in than, than in Iraq. So, so there's that, which is good. Hey, great. Thanks. Uh, this is Charles again. Um, so I, I, I'm a former sapper and, and so you mentioned, uh, standing up some, some EOD training capability for your team, which that is very dear to my heart. My question is, is also about your training for mines, booby traps, explosive hazards. This seems to be maybe also something that's more in this conflict than in the past. Do you do anything special for that? Um, just, just in the general package, we just do some identification. Uh, we don't train trainees on, on any disarmament. They should call EOD team for that. Uh, we do have an EOD trainer that can train EOD personnel. Uh, but, you know, things like the tripwires in the forest that, that are being countered in landmines, um, those are a factor. But in Iraq, it was doorways and, and houses and, um, you know, uh, pressure plates and things like this. There were plenty of... of uh, traps and explosives and IEDs in Iraq as well. So it's something that we've done before. Um, generally, it's, it's for, the, for the average trainee, it's identification and avoidance of those things. Um, but it certainly is, is something that we've, we've put trip wires attached to airsoft grenades in the woods um, while training to get them used to encountering such things. So it is, it is part of our curriculum. Thanks a lot. You guys are saving so many lives. I'm sure of it. Um, knowing how important training is. Um, thanks a lot, Tom. Yeah, let's get uh, to a couple of questions from the audience. Um, I think Leonard had his uh, hand up for, for quite a while, Matthew. That's right, uh, Leonard. You mentioned last time you were up on the uh, on the panel here that you you lacked strong, um, power in your training facility. Is that still an issue? Would small generators help, or have you sorted that? Uh, we don't have a generator to take with us. It's always a problem now that Russia is targeting the energy infrastructure. Um, the house that that we rent has a generator at the house. Um, but that's not ours, so we can't take it with us when we're training. Sometimes we do training in, in other towns or areas, sometimes for weeks or a month at a time. So, yeah, you know, a generator that we can take with us that actually belongs to us uh, would be extremely helpful. Uh, we have a lot, especially because we use uh, batteries for the airsoft. So every night or every other night or so, we need to charge, you know, dozens of batteries. So if we don't have electricity, that that stops the airsoft portion of the training. Uh, send you a direct message um, or send, send me one. I might, we have a transport going this weekend. So um, it depends where you are. Maybe we can help. Oh, that would, that would be amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Get, send me a DM on Twitter, please. Yeah, already done it last time. Okay. Thank you. I'll check it after the, after this I'll send a new one. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you so much, Leonard. That, that's uh, it's really fantastic. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, Shovel Girl. Kind of appropriate for this discussion. I'm digging trenches. Hey, Matthew. Um, first of all, how are you doing? You sound a little... It's been, been rough. 
sounds it's like. been it's just it's been a it's been a long day and a cold day um and we ran training right up into nighttime so yeah we uh-huh. haven't we haven't been we haven't been back in the warmth that long and uh, i haven't eaten dinner yet so but otherwise we're doing fine thank you for asking uh i wish i could send you some sunshine i'm here in the u.s and georgia and it's sunny and fall and there's lots of colors in the trees um so first of all that i have like three questions um um do you guys have any like do you guys have access to depression meds or something that can help you with the seasonal affective disorder or any kind of um we've, we've been talking a lot the last couple of days about like mental health assistance do y'all have access to anything like that um we 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 would we're doing okay um amorale's pretty high it's actually the guys are laughing in the other room while eating dinner so it's actually uh uh hard to even hear right now um we're, we're doing okay uh ukraine has good pharmacies uh you know they they have actually pretty decent health care from what i can see so but we're doing we're doing okay um and a lot of our trainers rotate um you know for one to two months each um some of us stay full time but but generally they're not they're not here too long that it would become an issue but but uh no we're we're doing okay but thank you for all right and then um just to make sure in this do you guys already have enough like shoes and socks to rotate for the wet weather or is that something on your needs list um, no, we're we're doing okay with that. Um, yeah, yeah, we're doing we're doing all right with that. And and like I said, uh, Rip Rawlings is good. Said he provides some winter jackets and so on for us. Um, but yeah, I mean the the guys generally they they show up with their own gear for for basic things like boots and all. And we're doing okay with that. Um, are you responsible for the sauna that we saw built in one of those trenches? No, I I haven't seen this, but it doesn't surprise me too much because a lot of houses here surprisingly have saunas in them. Uh, It's a pretty common Ukrainian thing. It's not it's not as as luxurious um, or extravagant as as it is when an American has a sauna in their house here. It's it's much more common uh, to find. But I haven't seen that trench, but that would be a good one to visit. I'll have to send you the picture if you haven't seen it. Um, the last question I had was, um, and and I don't want you to compromise anything, but are you guys having to do any kind of adaptation when it comes to drones and how people deal with them being in the vicinity is, is, it seems, I mean, obviously this is a new kind of warfare tactic, I guess, I, I'm assuming. It definitely seems to be ramped up. Is this something y'all are going to have, y'all are having to adapt to? And kind of awareness, time? kind of awareness of them as well, right? Building awareness, perhaps, right. that you might right. always have something flying overhead. Right, it is, and it's something that we've actually done, done training uh, with forces that have drones where they have used... On force and force, they've used their own thermal imaging drones um, during night training. 
um, looking for the opposing force. So it is something that we incorporate in the training. Uh, it's something to consider when doing trenches and skirmishers. Um, there's some countermeasures for thermals for drones that we've discussed with trainees. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that, that needs to be paid attention to. We look up more often than we did in any other mission. Um, you definitely pay attention to sounds of, of aircraft buzzing, uh, anything that sounds unusual. Uh, we've all seen the videos posted on Twitter of, of, uh, especially Russians lounging about, you know, and then suddenly, uh, explosives dropped on them. So, uh, the same threat exists for Ukrainians. Uh, it's something that, that they're aware of, that, that they're concerned about, um, and it's something that, that when possible, we include in training or at least uh, make a note of it. But they've all seen the videos, too. So they're, they're quite aware to look up as well. Okay. And then this is my last question. I want to let you go eat. Um, in general, on average, how much does, does each one of those airsoft guns? I mean, look, I was just looking at Evike, and I'm not sure which brand you prefer, but are you talking about like on average, are they around the $200 range or just to give an idea of like how much you guys need help wise? Uh, each one runs about 225. Uh, and then depending on how it's shipped, uh, usually cause we, we get a large amount at once or, or at least several at once. Then the shipping costs can be quite high. And then we usually have to pay an extra, uh, $150 or so per bag for extra bags when, uh, when taking them across on aircraft. So I don't really know exactly what the cost when you add in, when you add in all the shipping and transporting, um, on air, on the airplane adds up to, but it probably runs about two, 250 a gun after all that, maybe 275. Okay. Thank you so much for answering my questions and I hope you've got a good dinner in store. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cheryl Girl. Thank you, Matthew. I think this is really important contextualization here as well, right? Uh, this isn't about, uh, you know, many thousands of dollars per gun, even a few hundred dollars makes a difference already. Um, hey, you, you were talking Absolutely. about morale, you know, morale running really high, motivation running really high. Um, is this something that you've observed across the various units that you've been training? Um, you know, there's, there's a good sense of camaraderie. It's people fighting for their homeland. It's, it's, uh, an ongoing multi-generational struggle against that's been going on against Russia and previously the Soviet union, um, dating back many decades. So, you know, this is a fight that, that in a lot of ways, Ukrainians always knew was going to come at some point and they were mentally prepared for it. Um, the morale and the camaraderie is really high, um, especially now that, you know, it's it's a big boost to morale when they know that they're getting advanced weapon systems, um, you know, to uh, especially in recent months. I've seen things here that I had only seen before uh, that were being used by U.S. forces in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I've ridden in some of these vehicles here even that that almost certainly were previously used in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, the outpouring of international supports really helped um, 
the progress made in recent months has really helped. Um, I'm sure there's, there's going to be ups and downs, but, you know, when you look back at summer, um, when I was in the deployed the Bakhmut area with the unit, uh, those were really crushing times. Um, that was before HIMARS started arriving. That was when Russia was using uh, 50,000 artillery rounds a day. Literally, it sounds like an unbelievable number, but that's what it was. And Ukraine only had 5,000 a day that they were firing back. So it's definitely changed a lot from then when it looked when it looked uh, devastating and almost hopeless uh, with Ukraine suffering up to 1,000 casualties a day during those artillery barrages. But now uh, Ukraine has, last I heard, uh, basically parity with Russia on the artillery ammunition issue. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely turned around from where it was in the summer. People are optimistic, but, you know, it's it, they recognize it's a long fight. Um, and, you know, the units that have deployed that we've trained have had successful deployments. Uh, that gives them a lot of confidence once they get their first deployment under their belt. And I, I feel like they're all ready to, to get in the fight and they all want to get it done. So that was kind of a switch, right? When when Heimer started blowing up all of those ammo dumps and uh, um, uh, getting rid of uh, the excess Russian artillery munitions, hey, you you said camaraderie is really good. Um, when you when you have a unit in training, how do you see the relationship between the uh, soldiers and the officer, the enlisted men and the officers in various units? How much does it differ per unit? But also, you know, you have a lot of Western trainers, Canadians, Americans, whatnot. Um, how do they see or maybe compare the relationships that they're used to between enlisted men and officers at home uh, versus the ones in Ukraine? Do they find it a healthy relationship similar to those in NATO militaries? Or, you know, is, or is this also something that you try to work on, those maybe soft skills a little bit as well? Um, the relationship between officers and soldiers here is is actually probably more more sort of parody and camaraderie. Um, I would say it's not as, as it's not as regimented and hierarch, hierarchical in their interactions with each other. Um, it's, it's much more friendly and informal. That's largely due to a lot of, a lot of the uh, soldiers serving and the officers being new to this. They were citizens who have now become soldiers. Um, so all of the, uh, all of the, uh, formalities and, and so on haven't been as fully ingrained into them. Uh, one thing that does exist that actually has an effect, though, is there is still the Soviet style mentality of not taking the initiative or not be, feeling the freedom to take the initiative as a smaller unit leader and waiting for orders to come from higher up. And that's something that we really work with them to learn to take the initiative for commanders to learn to issue to issue an order and and allow uh, officers under them some leeway in executing the order and to take the initiative when they need to and not be paralyzed in place waiting for command to come from higher up. Um, that's that's a, a legacy of Soviet-style thinking that is very hard to break here. There's also just a natural inclination that nobody wants to make a mistake and get in trouble with their superiors. But, um, you, know, you know, we... We do provide leadership training, and even when we're not doing a training course, we incorporate leadership training into all the exercises that we do um, to give squad leaders and platoon leaders experience 
uh, actually leading their men and getting the respect of their men and having the confidence to to lead and the confidence to trust leaders beneath them to also uh, show leadership and take initiative on behalf of so how do you even bring something like that up? Um, you know, how how do you bring something like that up? Come on, you know, be more active, be more uh, forward, be more responsible. Is is there a little bit of a? You no, know, you you said it's a little bit of culture still left over, right? It, it must be right. the, less than than an easy thing to bring up compared to okay, when you do this, point the gun in that direction. You know, that that seems like a more easy thing to bring up. Anything more, a little bit more mechanical. Well, we, we bring it up the conversation, but we also just bring it up in, in the training. Um, we have platoon leaders, issuers, squad leaders to, to execute an operation in, in a scenario-driven simulated combat, and then they can see the effects of, yes, you know, they can, they can give an order to a squad leader, and the squad leader can execute the order without having to have it micromanaged by the platoon leader. Um, one of the things we also do is we rotate uh, soldiers into leadership positions. So uh, in the last training, we actually had the youngest member of the platoon be the platoon leader for a few exercises and and so that they could see what the responsibility of leadership is so that they can can learn what to do if, if their leader were to fall in combat so that they weren't all paralyzed, so that they have a better understanding of how difficult it is to be a leader um, how to take direction as well as give direction. Um, so we, we do a variety of things that really change their thinking about leadership um, and, and get everybody familiar with, with all different aspects of being both a, a leader and a follower, um, giving orders and taking orders and the responsibilities involved and the confidence to, to execute orders uh, in a competent and effective manner. Matthew, I think that's absolutely fantastic. Uh, just listening to, you know, talking about commander's intent and rotating leadership position. And um, I'll be honest, it sounds like you're actually chaining, training the some parts of the Ukrainian National Guard better than many of the Western National Guard units. That's great. Well, thank you. I, I don't know. I don't know about that, but what we, we try our best. Um, and the National Guard unit we just trained when they had a pre-deployment party. Uh, at the at the event, the the uh, platoon leader or the company commander actually told me that, you know, now he has the confidence that when orders come from higher up, he's confident that his men can do whatever whatever they're ordered to do. So that was uh, that was right before their deployment, and from what I hear, the deployment's going well. So that's really what we aim for. Thank you very much, Matthew. Uh, we have a one of our friends here, George. Uh, George, I'm guessing all of this training sounds very different from what you had to do in armored warfare, right? No, I, yeah. Well, we we all started with uh, with with the same basics, so you know, there's always that ground level, and uh, you know, each we there was always the golden rule: you always train the man, uh, train the man uh, above you and below you. You had to know uh, the guy's job above you and the guy's job below you. But uh, from from what Matthew has been describing with with these guys, I mean they're they're being trained uh, for combat. Uh, one of our biggest problems here in the United States that we found out the hard way was uh, our National Guard units. Uh, sorry to say, we're not up to uh, 
We're not up to snuff uh, when they caught a lot of them were called up uh, during Desert Storm. We found ourselves having to uh, retrain a, a lot of the units that were sent to us to help us. So it's nice to hear that uh, Matthew and his team are training these guys uh, to be, you know, actual uh, frontline uh, combat soldiers. I, I do have a, a question, though, for Matthew. Go right ahead. Matt, so um, I'm sorry, I missed I missed the beginning. How long does it take for you to train uh, to train a unit? And is the unit obviously you're, you're going to get a mixed bag when you're talking about some of these territorial uh, national guard units, right? You're going to have people that are complete novices to people that have prior training. Right. And when we work with more than just National Guard units, uh, we've, we've worked with uh, a Special Forces unit. We've worked with TDF early on. We don't really work with TDF anymore, though. Um, we work with National Guard. We work with, uh, with Larry Marcus's 47th Separate Battalion, uh, which had a, a, a mix of veterans and novices. Um, our basic training, normally it's two weeks, um, and it's custom tailored to to what they expect to find on their deployments, um, what they request, but also what, you know, we don't just uh, apply a cookie cutter model to the training. I mean, we have standard things that we go over in basic training, but uh, for example, with the National Guard unit, we knew what city they were deploying to. We knew, had an idea of what sort of tasks they were going to be given. So we customize the training for this deployment um, for them to be prepared for, for what they would encounter and for this particular deployment, in addition to a variety of skills that they'll use for other deployments. And then if they want further training, uh, we're always here for them. Um, so really, you know, it, it depends if it's special forces unit and we're focusing on something like uh, we did night operations with one of them. Uh, you know, that can be a few, a few different nights. Um, but our basic, basic training package is usually about two weeks uh, depending on when they contact us, how much time they have. Um, but yeah, I mean, we can usually, we can usually get it done quite well if we go all day, every day for two weeks. Um, one thing that really helps is their morale and enthusiasm for training is high, not just because they haven't really received training before and they're happy to get it, but also because of, of us using the airsoft, uh, it keeps them engaged. It keeps them, uh, their attention on the training. It keeps them excited. Um, you know, and, and that really, really has a, has a huge effect on how seriously they take training um, and how much they retain during the training. I, I was gonna, oh. uh, can I ask you one more question? Yes. So in, in, in the U.S. Army, sometimes we run into a problem when, when someone's coming from another unit uh, and they've been trained a certain way. Not that anything is right or wrong, but sometimes we, we want everybody to be on the same page and, uh, you know, do things a specific way because of, like you said, the task at hand or, or the mission statement. Um, excuse me. Have you, <clears throat> God, frog in the throat. Have, have you run into any of those issues at all, or are the are the Ukrainians more uh, more receptive? Like, let's say some of the ones that have like prior experience, 
uh, are has has have you had any issues with that with their prior service or their prior training coming from other units or do they just uh, are they just like a sponge and just take in what you're what you're teaching them? They're mostly like a sponge uh, because most of them haven't had training or they or there's just a mix in the unit of some that have and, and most that haven't. Um, we have encountered this before. Um, usually if they had maybe a little bit of NATO training or they had some random uh, foreigners that came in and trained them or in, even within their own force, they had some training that um, one example is some ways that they react in your ambush. Uh, another is whether they're doing bumping or bounding. Um, we've actually found through experience that, you know, the philosophy of give them a lot of tools and then they can choose what to use is not a good, is not a good training method for here, uh, or, or anywhere really with forces that we train where they only get a few weeks of training. Uh, we give them the best tool because then they're all on the same page when they need to use it. And they don't get confused having to decide what to do in, in a critical moment uh, when they're under fire. So um, in situations where they've been taught something different, um, you know, where we can incorporate, we do. But if it's something that we have a, uh, a way that might be better to do it, we explain it to them and importantly tell them why um, and have a conversation with them and you know, it's not just do it this way. It's this is why you should do it this way. And we demonstrate the difference between different methods and what the consequences can be between them. Uh, one thing that is a bit of an issue sometimes is weapons up versus weapons down or moving um, as a safety issue. Uh, some of them have been taught to go weapons up when running. Um, we've explained the, some of the safety consequences of that. It's easier to fix a leg than fix a head uh, if they were to accidentally shoot a buddy. Um, so that's one thing that we, we generally try to get them to do muzzles down um, because they're only going to have a certain number of weeks of training. We don't want any accidents. Uh, and generally, it's better for forces that, that are only going to receive a certain amount of training um, and familiarity with firearms to, to do muzzles down. So you know, if it's a safety issue, we, we correct it pretty early on. If it's another issue... Um, we try to give them the best method and get everybody on the same page. So when the bullets are flying, they're not confused about what to do. Yeah. So, so, so thank you. Yeah. Because what you're describing is like repetitive, clear, clear and concise training. And yeah, it's, it's a huge help when you understand why you're being trained a certain way and why this way is better for you than the other way and the fact that you guys are taking the time to explain to them why and just not you know just ramming it down their their throat uh, i think is is a huge plus to your team and then the people that you're training right well this is something we found we we would notice uh the these would just be going through the motions um for example, uh, a recent example is we were doing crossing linear danger areas when we were using streets, just crossing uh, streets and using bounding to do so. And then we put them in a situation where it was a T intersection and using buildings and found that, that they were just going through motions. Um, you know, they wouldn't use the building wall for, for cover. They would jump out from beyond the wall into the danger zone uh, 
going prone and doing it like they were crossing a street uh, in previous training. So then we, we realized that they weren't making the connection between the why, uh, that it's not just this is what you do or how you do it, but why you do it and making that connection. Or we find the same thing when doing training for CQB, uh, why you have to clear corners. And then we'll put one of our guys in the corner, have them come in and, and light them up with airsoft, um, you know, and, and let them see the consequences of doing things certain ways and why it's important to you and your team to know what your responsibility is and why things are done a certain way and what happens when you, when you don't do it correctly. Um, so really that is, that is a key part of the training for them to understand why, especially if it's something that involves self-preservation. Um, another example is doing CQB, uh, the, the first man in getting a squeeze on the shoulder that the team's ready. Um, if he just charges in and his team is up behind him, he goes to clear one corner, he gets shot in the back from the other side. So, you know, when you explain it to him that, that it's his self-interest and his life on the line to wait until his team's ready before going in, then they get it right away. Um, and then you eliminate any problems with that. So, so really explaining the why is important uh, in training and, and something that we really focus on. Thank you so much, Matthew. I, I think this is really enlightening to a lot of people and you know, is really showing people what good work you're doing, not just saying, you know, oh, we're training, we're training some guys. No, 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 but really showing that you <laughs> more than just know exactly what you're, what you're doing. Um, Matthew, we've got one more little question from Kevin, and then uh, I think we'll have Colonel Rip Rollings relieve you and send you off to dinner. Okay, sure. Ke- Kevin, go ahead. Hey, thanks. I guess I got in right at the last minute. I was, uh, it's a kind of a different question. Um, I heard you mention that part of the uh, training was medic, uh, if you will. And, and that's what I'm kind of curious about is the combat medic. And I would think being new, indoctrinated as a new military personnel, that might be a tough hurdle to get over. And I wondered, like, is there only a special few that take to it? Um, Anything you could shed some light on that? Because I would think you do what you have to do in times of crisis, but somebody's really going to have a cool head for that type of thing. Anyways, I'll drop down. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. Um, Really, with medical training, it's sort of similar to leadership training. You summarize to the top and you realize who's who should focus on being a combat medic. Um, But, you know, the, the medical training we haven't had, really any problem with with soldiers not not uh responding well to the basic training they all they all realize the importance of it um and they the responsibility of knowing what to do and everybody knowing what to do in those situations uh but certainly some rise to to the to the top and clearly should be combat medics uh one example is uh, a trainee sergey from the 47th who, you know, we focused on as a combat medic. And when he was deployed to Bakhmut um, and his squad got hit, they had nine out of 10 wounded. Um, he was both fighting and performing medical care. I think he, he dragged three out of the combat area, saved one life uh, and treated the wounds of everybody on the squad. So, um, yeah, you, you, you see who, who has an aptitude for different things. Um, it's the same when you find, uh, on range days, who might be a good designated marksman or sniper, who might be a good leader, who might be a good medic. Um, they, these things, they, they tend to rise to the top when you, you find somebody with a real aptitude for it. And then you just have to nurture it and grow it and, 
and see if it's something they want to do. Well, okay, thank thanks. you very much. Uh, sorry. I was just say, thank you very much, Matthew. And uh, thank you for taking all this time, uh, especially at the end of a very long day before you've even gotten to have dinner, as you noted. Um, Matthew, where should people go if they want to support the good work you're doing? SonsOfLibertyInternational.com uh, is our website. Uh, we're also active on social media. Uh, but, but definitely SonsOfLibertyInternational.com is the place to, to go to learn more. Uh, make a do- donation. Feel free to contact us with any questions you have. And we really appreciate all the support. Well, thank you very much, Matthew. And I, I put a link to, well, one of the old tweets uh, from Sons of Liberty International uh, up in the net so people can more easily find it. Find that Twitter thank account you. as well, and it has a link to the website. I think your profile mm-hmm. has a link to the website as well, if I remember correctly. So if, uh, yes. if people check your profile out right there in the bio, uh, there should be the link to the website as well. Um, anything else, Matthew, that you think you know, people really should know uh, before you head off to a well-deserved dinner? Liz, thank you so much for having me on. It's always great to talk to you. Great questions. Uh, Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava.